Life can take you to unexpected places. And despite your best efforts to plan your future, sometimes life has a different plan. Adapting to change can be challenging, but resilience and agility can help. And in the end, you may just find your purpose and passion in this new path. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Julie Smolanski, humanitarian, survivor, warrior, mom, and the CEO of the company Lifeway Foods. Julie, welcome to the show. You describe yourself as a humanitarian, a survivor, a warrior, a mom, and a CEO. And and that's a lot of roles. And so I want to learn about I want to learn about each one. Um, but can you start off by just telling me who you are? What's what's your story and who's Julie? Um, well, just like it says, you know, a, a warrior, my family were, um, my family and I were refugees and immigrants from the former Soviet Union. Um, my parents came with just uh, $116 in their pockets and no language, no money. And, um, you know, I grew up with uh, one foot in one, you know, Russian culture, Russian community here in the United States, as well as uh, in my, you know, then I'd go to school and and have to change um, the way I behaved or, or interacted mm-hmm. with um, American friends and whatnot, um, teachers, you know, the world. And so, you know, I learned how to navigate um, kind of an interesting uh, existence and um, at the same time grew up watching my parents build a life from for, from scratch uh, as entrepreneurs. My mom re- opened the first Russian deli in Chicago and her store became Town Square. And so like community and culture became very important to me um, and entrepreneurship became very important to me. And um, I like really picked up a lot watching, watching my family um, build and, and create a life for themselves. And then, you know, saw, saw my father, start Lifeway, um, which is the company that I run today and, you know, overcame uh, a lot of adversity in, in that process as a girl, as a woman. Um, and, uh, and through like, well, my father had a sudden heart attack and passed away and I became the CEO, which I'm sure we'll get into this further, but, um, you know, that was like another moment of survival and warriorship and, and having to, um, you know, run and lead Lifeway at the age of 27, uh, already a publicly traded company at the time, um, you know, it, it put me into the, the, this uh, position of being the youngest female CEO of a publicly traded company, um, which is uh, an, a great, you know, platform and things to launch from there. Lots of other opportunities that I've been really honored and privileged to um, take part in and lead very challenging conversations around, um, you know, the safety of women, equality, um, you know, access to representation and, and a whole bunch of other things along the way. And, and, you know, I have two beautiful daughters that, uh, I fight to, uh, create a a better world for them in and, you know, very focused on, 
Um, kind of the core mission is to help reduce suffering in our world. I think that's kind of where I gravitate from based on my experience, the, the life experience that I've had, the stories that run through my DNA and my bloodlines and my ancestors, basically. <laughs> In awesome. short, <laughs> well, well, we'll dig into to some some more of that as as we continue to talk. But you know, obviously, you mentioned that you became CEO at twenty seven of of Lifeway uh, Kiefer, which is a public company. So, can you can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? I mean, were you were you already part of the company? Was it something that you had planned on doing? Um, and what was I mean, what was your experience like? And then I would say, in addition to that, um, you know, you know, throughout your journey and, and as you continue to be CEO, how, how do you take care of yourself and your own well-being, knowing that, you know, Lifeway is a company that really promotes health and well-being on on so many levels. I know that it's kind of core to the company's mission. Yeah. Well, the product that we are laser sharp focused and passionate about called Kefir, uh, or Kefir, which is a um, probiotic cultured yogurt-like drink that my ancestors in the in the Soviet Union area, you know what what is now Russia and Ukraine, formerly Soviet Union, um, in the Caucasus Mountains in that region, my ancestors for over two thousand years uh, were making kefir, which it, it is it is like a fermented cultured. Um, tangy effervescent drink that's loaded with good bacteria. And my ancestors, when they consumed it, experienced uh, a sense of well-being. They they said that they felt better. They called it the champagne of dairy. Um, <laughs> they they um, used it medicinally for thousands of years. Uh, Cleopatra bathed in it. Uh, Marco Polo wrote about it in his travels. And this product existed um, by word of mouth through great-grandmothers and great-great-great-grandmothers passing down this ancient art form of fermentation and um, learn, you know, telling the stories of uh, how it, is, it, it has helped their well-being. And it's just really cool because in the last, you know, hand, several decades, gut health and probiotics and kefir has really finally re- is receiving the notoriety that it should have. Um, you know, up until my family immigrated, kefir was unknown outside of the Soviet Union, only in Europe, you know, Eastern European countries. But even yogurt in the United States was very much in its infancy in the 70s and, and 80s even. So, you know, this this product um, really came to be here in the United States because of immigration, because of um, our nomadic uh, lifestyle and, and, and ability to be travelers and explorers and journeymen and take risks and following our gut like my parents did. You know, they left. We were the first of 48 families that were allowed to settle in the United States in Chicago um, in 1976. And so they they 
paved a path and trailblazed and brought something that was this healing um, product that everybody in, in the Soviet Union, when my parents were growing up, this was a staple. This was central to wellness and well-being and health. Kids, as soon as they were born, were given kefir all the way through, you know, until they passed away. A typical lunch in the Soviet Union was a quart of kefir and a loaf of bread. It was very humble. It was very basic. But the amount of healing and well-being that was received from the bacteria was really life-sustaining for for so many people. And it reduced symptoms of so many other um, gastrointestinal issues and, and whatnot. And so in the last, you know, handful of decades, the science has really caught up to what my ancestors, our ancestors knew, which was that kefir was, um, can help you feel better. We now know that it even reduces stress, depression, and anxiety. We know that the gut has 90% of all serotonin cells, all of the feel-good chemicals in our body. So there is really this mind-gut connection that we're just starting to uncover now. Um, we know that all of our immunity 70 to 90% of our immunity cells sit in the gut. And so it is critical that we have a healthy functioning gut, one where we're constantly restoring all the good microflora because our modern lifestyle really uh, kills all of that good microflora. People who take antibiotics, that all of your flora gets wiped out when you're on antibiotics. Stress, travel, though we're not doing lots of traveling, we do have a lot of stress these days. Um, so we now know that, you know, even we can manipulate our, our stress and depression and anxiety through how we eat. So that's really at the core of what we're doing is, is bringing awareness uh, to people around gut health and the impact of kefir and how you can really be empowered to take control over your health. And, and was this, I mean, was this your father's vision and, and your vision? Because I, I have to give you all so much credit because I, I feel like, um, you know, your company in particular has really helped bring this mainstream um, in a really positive way and educate all of us as to the importance of, of, of what you and your ancestors, I guess, have known for, for hundreds yeah. of years. So it, it was that part of me when, you're, when your dad brought this, you know, started this company as an entrepreneur and when you took over, was that really, was that the vision? Yeah. Well, yes, it was. For my dad, it was. Um, he he was so passionate and believed so strongly in gut health and kefir. He couldn't believe that, you know, he had been in America for uh, about nine years when the idea came to um, start Lifeway. Uh, he could not believe that there was no kefir in America, the largest marketplace, the most, you know, uh, the the just the most uh, highly desired marketplace that had everything. He said, America has everything, but it doesn't have kefir. And it was like, a, a, you know, just a shock to him. And he felt like it was an incredible opportunity to bring something to the marketplace and educate Americans um, about this product that they didn't know, which was, of course, also a challenge because he didn't have a Harvard law, uh, Harvard uh, business school degree. He had broken English. Um, he didn't have a strong network like, you know, if you grew up in America, you'd have, you know, your college friends, you'd have uh, other workplace friends, you know, friends that you could connect to and learn about how you even write a business plan. My 
dad went to the Skokie Public Library, oh, the local library in our in our hometown, and uh, and uh, you know researched that from the Dewey Decimal System. Like, how do you write a business plan? How do you go public? Like, he did all of that very <laughs> grassroots uh, uh, without any uh, support or, or access to help. So he was passionate about that, and for me. You know, I actually did not want to do have anything to do with the business. I didn't quite understand yet how helpful Kiefer was to the body. But what I always did want to do was, um, well, it sounds so cliche, and especially as a teenager growing up, but I wanted to change the world. I wanted to help people. Um, and ultimately, I did want to reduce suffering in the world. I thought that I would be a psychologist. I started grad school. I spent a lot of my work and internships and whatnot um, as uh, doing a lot of trauma and crisis work. Uh, I was a rape crisis counselor in college. Uh, I was I worked as an in-home family counselor with um, uh, kids that were removed from their homes, abused kids, very, very heavy stories. Um, and I, so I did have that passion for, um, you know, health and, and re I guess reducing suffering. Um, and it was very seren serendipitously that I was in my father's office, uh, one during grad school and was listening to how he was talking about Kiefer. And all of a sudden, like a light went off in my mind that I realized that all of the ways that I wanted to help and, um, I, I could channel that into helping my father build his business, but also help people make those positive choices in around lifestyle. Um, and that I could maybe step away from some of the trauma work, which was just really hard on me personally too. Um, and um, still leave that imprint on the world that I saw in a, in a for-profit manner. Um, and, so I got to work with my dad. I, I left grad school. I didn't come back for my second year. And I um, worked with my father for five years side by side and really learned everything that he had to to teach me. Um, and I feel like it was one of those follow your gut moments as well, because, you know, because I spent five years with him, working with him, learning the business, um, he empowered me all the time, you know, put female role models in front of me constantly, um, invited me to give presentations at board meetings. I did due diligence during our largest transaction when Group Danone um, made an investment into Lifeway um, just a few years before he passed away. I mean, I was right out of college doing due diligence and, and leading a transaction with the CEO of the largest, um, you know, multinational food company in the world. Uh, and, and that was uh, because my father just believed in me and I had, you know, a, a tremendous amount of like emotional intelligence just from all the work I did in psychology. Uh, but I was able to use that, you know, marrying up some of the psychology and the tools around how people make lifestyle, food choices, decisions, um, all of that coupled with um, uh, this intuitive sense of like following my family's entrepreneurship um, path. Um, so that was just really, really, I guess, magical. And, and I had also, I guess the other piece was that I was always interested in health and food and nutrition. I grew up as a figure skater. I skated for 15 years, which was 
you know, as a Russian girl, that was the only sport that was really open to me. <laughs> it was figure skating or gymnastics, one of those sports. Um, and so I spent, you know, a lot of time learning about food and nutrition. And uh, if you think back to what that time period was, it was like the 80s. So we're in as, as it relates to food and marketing and, and food marketing in specifically, um, the messages at that time were all about, you know, dieting and fat free yeah. foods and sugar free foods, but really a lot of fat free stuff, um, which was a, a, a pretty toxic way to grow up. And I, I guess I just really wanted to find a better way to talk about food and how we communicate those the positive attributes. And I really wanted the messaging to be not about deprivation and elimination, but about w- how foods can work for us to fuel our bodies to help us get to our highest purpose and the goals that we want to live out versus you can't eat this, you can't eat this, this is bad, this is terrible, you know, that 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 I just was really uh, found to be really unhelpful, toxic, dangerous. Um, and so I kind of tried to push back against that. Um, that well, we know it doesn't work yeah. either. So, yeah. <laughs> so there's that, right? right? Yeah. So did did you ultimately want to become the CEO? I did. Yeah. Just right. Um, Twenty seven. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Once I made the decision that I would like leave school and come work for my dad, uh, I fell in love with everything. Obsessed with gut health. Uh, obsessed with learning about probiotics and bacteria and like all the the ways that it helps our body. I mean, Americans did not know what probiotics were in like the 90s and even in through 2000, even after my dad died in 2002, you know, we were still at the very early, early stages of talking about probiotics. And, um, you know, in this pandemic, it feels like even now the conversation has even gone more mass than we've ever anticipated um, because we're really understanding and making that connection about immunity and mental health and the fact that our health is tied to each other, that our health is linked to each other. Um, So, you know, once I had decided that I was going to come work at Lifeway and help my dad, I was like obsessed. (laughs) It's my favorite, you know, thing to, to try to talk about. I mean, what we know is like, the most important thing is our is our health and wellness, and yep. um, that's what we're seeing. That that nothing else really matters, and that all people really want is their health. They they nothing else matters. You want your health. Um, so if we can bring that to uh, people, then we're I think we've like fulfilled our mission and purpose. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Um, Let's shift gears, although this is still on the topic of of health and and well-being, a little bit different uh, spin, but but let's talk about resilience. And and I know that this is a a topic that you talk about quite a bit because you've had a lot of obstacles and you've alluded to several of those, but obstacles and challenges in in your life. And so, um, you know, I think oftentimes, and it's true that resilience is built um, in big moments, because a lot of times we don't have a choice. Right. <laughs> but but resilience is also built in small moments and in self care and and the way that we you know live our life on a day to day basis in some instances. And so, how have you built resilience personally over the years? And and how how has that helped you grow as as a leader, 
as um, in your company, in your community, you know, as a mother, as a friend, as you know, all the all the other roles that you play. Yeah, I mean, that's such a great question. Um, And I think about it a lot. Um, I mean, in part, it's, you know, going through the hard things and then coming out of it, you know, touching the abyss, touching the darkness, you know, descending down into that. And then when you emerge and come out of it, you come out a changed person, you come out different with knowledge to share. Um, I feel like maybe that is, um, you know, how, how things played out for me. And in part, um, I think, you know, using my body in a physical way. So initially as a kid, I, you know, I mentioned I was a figure skater. Um, I played tennis. I did uh, varsity tennis. Uh, in my twenties, I picked up running. I started marathon, um, you know, running marathons. I've done like 13 of them. Mm. Um, you know, I really push uh, my body physically and I feel like it's a very great metaphor for mental resilience too, and how you can build and make your, your resilience muscle stronger is by going and doing things that you think that you maybe can't by, um, forcing yourself to be uncomfortable in other ways. Maybe that's, um, I don't know, public speaking, if you're afraid to do public speaking, you know, raising your hand when I was a teenager, you know, raising your hand to answer a question in school, even if you're afraid and you think you're going to sound stupid and you're going to say the wrong thing, doing it anyways. And learning that even if you make a fool of yourself, you can get through it. Um, even if you don't, you know, hit the time that you wanted to run, you know, you still did it. And that's, you know, understanding that those challenges are worthy of celebration. Um, and every time you do something you're afraid of, you come out and you know that you're stronger from it and that you can get through it and that we can do hard things. Um, and so those were all, I think, ways that I kind of thought about it as I grew up. It's just like the constant challenging of myself and having, um, you know, power and control uh, in in how I move my body, um, sitting still with uncomfortableness, sitting in meditation, doing yoga, um, you know, having times to sit with the stillness, which is one of the most challenging things for me, because I tend to go and do things, add my calendar, you know, make it full, um, distract myself. Those are all things that became survival for me, um, which, you know, too much of it does is is not helpful. Um, So like, you know, being aware of that um, therapy, you know, having um, access to therapy was a lifesaver. If I didn't have it, I probably wouldn't be alive today. Um, let's see, uh, you know, the, um, gosh, they're finding role models. Um, you know, for me, uh one of the role models that I look to was like Oprah Winfrey. Um, (laughs) I thought, you know, I really, I didn't know anyone who had um, such stories of resilience or survivorship um, that had made it, that, you know, overcame it. And so, you know, seeing Oprah, she really, um, I hung on to her for dear life, I think. Uh, And today we have so many, so many more examples of what, uh, strong, you know, resilience women look like, um, not just women, I mean, men too, but 
we have a lot of access to a variety of what resilience looks like. And I think it's just so important that young people see that, that they, uh, you know, can have concrete examples of how that looks like. Um, so that's kind of, I think, why um, I'm passionate about sharing some of those stories. But yeah, so that's, that's, um, and, and I even think about, you know, the kefir culture, you know, this bacteria that it's a 2000 year old living bacteria that has seen <laughs> war and famine. I mean, survived. It's, it's, yeah, it survived. It survived yeah. it's storytelling. It survived. It stood the test of time. And, you know, I really believe like our DNA and all these cells, they just regenerate over and over. And we've been here before. We've been in crisis before. You know, I have been in crisis before. I've touched the darkness and the abyss before. So, you know, now being able to do, you know, going through this pandemic and racial unrest and, you know, the the just uncertainty of everything that's happening, um, I know that I've been here before and I can get through it and I could lead the ship um, through very dark and challenging waters. And we all can. We all can. Um, so, and, yeah. And how do you impart that to your teams and, and, and in your company? Is there a specific, I don't know, example that comes to mind where, you know, something either went, you know, very wrong or perhaps very right or, you know, where you used it as an opportunity? I suspect you do it all of the time. But, um, <laughs> but how, how do you do that with, you know, the, the teams that you lead? Because it, it requires as a leader that you you know, that you'd be quite vulnerable. And I think that that's difficult for, for some people. Yeah, I think so too. You're, you're probably right. Um, well, you know, for me, I think because I was a young woman, I really had, you know, faking it was not an option and mm -hmm. trying to look like somebody else doing it and some image of, you know, perfection was just not possible for me. Um, and I, I guess I just, decided to be true to myself and true to my story and that that would be more beneficial to my team, to, you know, the community, the world at large, um, whoever, whatever, you know, kind of whoever came across my, my way or is meant to hear my story. Um, I guess I feel like it's, um, you know, we, we try to, um, when things go wrong, when there's a crisis, uh, I try to look at those moments as lessons to learn from, uh, to, to do better, um, to make changes and adjust things so that, you know, I guess like what I'm thinking about is a moment when, um, we, we potentially, could have, you know, had a, a, like a health issue within the plant. And I looked at it as not like, oh, somebody messed up. But what I looked at it as, oh, we have an, a great opportunity to bring in a consultant to um, bring in some world-class folks to help us make some changes and adjust how we're doing things and make sure that, you know, we are top of, you know, the world-class in, in how we handle our operations. And we did. And it was 
kind of, I guess I look in those moments as small blessings in disguise mm-hmm. um, where, you know, this is a, like a sign and you can, if mindfulness, right? We talk about mindfulness a lot. If you're mindful of that moment that this is a sign and it's not a disaster, it's an opportunity to do better. Um, that's how I've always looked at challenges within the company. Um, even framing it. Yeah, darkest of moments, just reframe it as an opportunity, a lesson, a sign, and do better. And consistently just go through that pattern of, of adjusting, being mindful, being aware, seeing it as a sign, and and um, and saying thank you for the sign. You know, thank you to the universe for bringing it to my attention so that I could fix it, so that we can do better, so that we can learn from it. Um, and that's, I think, helpful to the team because they know that that you know they're not like in jeopardy of uh, right. of of their let's say jobs. I think a lot of people try to hide things or cover things up when they are afraid. Um, but when you're you know honest about whatever issue and you know that your leader, your boss, is not gonna. Um, you know, throw you into the fire and, but instead we'll work with you to make it better than, and, you know, you have truth and honesty that that's much, uh, much a stronger position to be in. Yeah. So I think I try to do that with our team. Yeah. That's, I love that. And I think there's a, there's a lot we can all learn from that. So you, one of the other roles you play is, is, is humanitarian. I mean, you're a huge advocate for, you know, women, but also, you know, um, sexual assault and, Mm um, you know, in, in, you're very involved in, in, you know, that community and in, in women's rights, um, is, how did you become passionate about this and how do you use the platform that you have today to really raise awareness around those issues? Well, thank you for asking Um, that. So, yeah, I mean, I am a survivor myself. Um, I had experienced an assault um, early on in my life and I had, um, you know, really, kept it a secret for most of my life, like most women uh, do, though I know the statistics that, you know, one in four women, one in three women in the world are raped, beaten, or murdered. One Mm -hmm. in four women are assaulted. So the statistics are really high. And it's like, we've seen that as the Me Too movement unfolded, that it is all of us. Um, And I had had conversations with my friends and over the years it became startling that it wasn't surprising anymore, that it was like, oh yeah, me too. And that's literally how it was. It was like, oh, me too. Yeah, wink, wink, me too. And I was really sick of this like secret that we all carry and it it's so toxic it has tentacles that reach into every aspect of our lives um and i decided that you know i had spent so much time trying to cover it up and edit myself and you know just constantly keeping myself from the rest of the world and carrying this burden of a secret and Though I had for 30 years worked in the space, like I mentioned, I was a rape crisis counselor. I helped write the first teen dating violence curriculum in the city of Chicago. The curriculum is still being used today. Um, So I've I've done just so much work in the space, but never said that it was me. And Mm -hmm. 
you know, there was, um, I decided when I made it quote unquote, that I had this obligation to not only share my story for others to be able to pick up as an example, but, you know, I knew that there were young women that were literally killing themselves, you know, t- taking their lives um, yeah. after uh, like something like this happens because you have like a, a 30% greater risk in suicide um, after a sexual assault. And um, I just knew that that I had like an obligation to share my story so that maybe there was somebody out there who might hear my story, might remember it and might think, you know, maybe if I just hang on, if I, you know, hang on today that I can make it. And then, you know, if that, if one person could be saved by me sharing my story, then I feel like it was, um, not worth it, but, but worth it. But like, I don't want to say worth it because you never want to say that like I had to go through this for some lesson to be learned but I for me it was important to um, help help uh, raise awareness around it and help use my influence and whatever power whatever to to make changes um, in the world and and so then that's when I became interested in scaling that idea and and joining others who had the same feelings like I did. And then I I became a producer and have worked on a number of films, um, The Hunting Ground, which uh, was the one that Lady Gaga uh, and Diane Warren, yeah, they uh, contributed a song to the film, but that one highlighted uh, rape on college campus and the cover-up. Um, which prompted 300 Title IX investigations across the country and held the most highest institutions, you know, all of our Ivy League schools, football teams, um, fraternities, all held them accountable and created curriculum for students and opened the door for conversations. Um, I think I'm really passionate about, you know, creating uh, our vocabulary for young people to learn about intimacy and enthusiastic consent and, um, you know, helping to frame and change our world so that it never happens again. Well, thank you for that work that you do. It's important for for all of us. I have one final question, which is kind of a two-part question. Mm -hmm. Um, You have a lot going on. So how do you manage everything we just talked about, plus being a mom and making time for for self-care? What does that look like for you? Oh, it's a crazy schedule. <laughs> it is pretty crazy. Um, well, first of all, I have a great team. Uh, so, you know, really relying on the team to help make all those things happen. Um, uh, you know, the, the I, I guess I just... <laughs> We have good boundaries at this point around my self-care is non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. Um, every day there is some way of getting a sweat, whether that's like yoga, running, you know, doing a bike class, whatever, workout, anything, any kind of workout. But once a day, every single day, um, even on off days, it's like a walk then. Um, but something for myself for at least an hour. And then there's other like little things that I like to do, but that is a non-negotiable. That is like, doesn't matter. The world is on fire. I will still get my workout in. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it is. uh, Cause it's like so easy to let it slip off. Um, I, yeah, the, the, my challenge is more about resting and sleeping. I tend to push myself way hard, uh, 
the pandemic has actually forced me to be still longer than I've ever been still. And that's been hard. I hear you. Um, <laughs> but, but so necessary. And, and I think I'll try to keep some of that stillness, even as, you know, hopefully we'll get out of this soon. Um, but whenever we do, hopefully some of that I, I'll maintain. But And I, I love like reading. I get so much joy from reading. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but making those, those moments, um, being... I think we talk about boundaries. We talk about um, knowing where yours are and what feels good. And um, I just, I recognize, well, first of all, it's a position of privilege to even say that because, you know, when I was growing up and my parents were building their business, there was no such conversation around self-care or wellness or balance or, you know, how to find balance in your life. Like that, that wasn't a thing for immigrants who are just starting out and building their life. So, you know, I feel like I've surpassed where my family has been. And now I can be in that kind of place where I say, you know, it's, it's just, it's non-negotiable. We're going to do a workout. We're going to meditate. We're going to, um, you know, light candles and, uh, take some deep breaths, whatever that is. And it's amazing how it really just comes back to breath and taking time to take a breath. I feel like as a world, we just sit and hold our breath, like waiting for the next thing to the next crisis. And, um, I guess I just would like to live uh, a life of, of uh, more stillness, balance, time mm. for reflection, um, have some of that joy and, and connecting to nature. I think now more than ever, we're recognizing how, um, how important our nature is to ourselves, our, our well-being. And, and I hope, you know, I try to instill that in my teams as well, um, that, that they should have balance. Uh, for themselves and to take time for themselves to check in with their families and their communities. And, um, you know, these are just really uh, even, even when you're the leader, you know, tone at the top, we talk about tone at the top. Um, When people see me taking care of myself, I think that maybe they're inclined on my, on their, on on my teams to also take care of themselves that they absolutely you know, if I'm talking about mental health and getting therapy and offering it to the team and checking in and saying, you know, hey, just checking in on everyone's mental health and and we have resources. Here's the 1-800-CRISIS number. Here's, you know, we have, uh, we'll cover X number of hours of of therapy if anyone needs it. Just even saying that helps you stigmatize it, I think, for um, for the teams. Uh, And when I'm vulnerable, it gives everyone else a chance to be vulnerable. I, I couldn't agree more. So, and I, and I can't think of a better line to end on. So thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for spending some time with us today and sharing your story and, and your insights. I know that I got a lot out of it and the listeners will as well. So I oh, deeply thank you appreciate so, it. Thank you so much. And it's so great that Deloitte is having this conversation and um, is creating, you know, space for this. It's just, it's so powerful. So thank you. Thank you. And I uh, I will make it back to Chicago one of these days and I'll let you know when I do. We can we can meet up for some kefir. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That would be awesome. I'm so grateful Julie could be with us today to talk about her journey and her passion. Thank you to our producers and our listeners. 
You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. Be well.